BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, why state colleges are sending out rejection letters to so many qualified high school seniors. Why would you not want me on your campus? Like, I just lift people up, I get good grades, I'm interested in school. We'll hear how colleges in states like Arizona and Oregon are embracing those students and why more South Asian seniors are choosing retirement communities where they can find chai, Bollywood movies, and laughter yoga. And once this laughter starts, everybody laughs. Believe me, it happens. It's contagious. (laughs) Plus, when a job caring for a 99-year-old woman becomes a deep friendship, and how the California town of Peanut got its name. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. If you're a high school senior or the parent of one, this time of year you're probably checking your mailbox, virtual or literal, all the time to see where you got into school for next year. And if you're looking for an acceptance letter from the UCs or CSUs, you might be among thousands of eligible students who are disappointed. Because even if you qualify, there just aren't enough spaces for everybody. But that's not how California's system was originally designed. 150 years ago this week, in March of 1868, the University of California was born, founded on the idea of college access for all. And by 1960, the state's master plan for higher education opened the door even further to college for so many people in our state. It's one of the pillars of the California dream. But these days, the state can't keep that promise. And as the California Report's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño tells us, colleges in nearby states are rolling out the welcome mat. Danny Holton was a good student in high school. He was in AP classes. He was in the environmental club in the homecoming court. Nice job getting his hands on it. Daniel Holton, who has been one of the top players on the field this evening. He was named Athlete of the Year, and he has a plaque on the wall of the gym. That's his mom, Carolyn. Danny had a 3.85 GPA at Mountain View High School in Silicon Valley. It wasn't the 4.6 some of his classmates had, but still, he felt good about his college prospects. Like, why would you not want me on your campus? Like, I just lift people up, I get good grades, I'm interested in school. Danny had his eye on UC's Davis, San Diego, and Irvine. He liked the big green spaces where students studied in the sunshine. His number one school was a CSU, Cal Poly. He loved how friendly people were there. He was excited to turn in his applications. 
you know, my whole high school career I kind of led up to this point, you know, getting the acceptance letters from Cal Poly and UCs. Then the letters started coming in. And I was rejected. They just kept coming. It was like the same letter, you know, San Diego, Davis, Irvine. We regret to inform you that we won't let you in. Cal Poly didn't let him in either. No wait list. It felt like I wasn't even close. So many California students share that disappointment every year. As the state's population grows and increasing numbers of high school grads meet college eligibility requirements, more and more qualified CSU and UC applicants have to compete for limited space. When you see your kid up at midnight doing papers for AP and really working hard, yeah, you kind of would like all that extra work to pay off in some way. That's Danny's dad, John. Even if you do everything right, uh, you still can't get into the, to the UCs. So we just don't have enough seats. That's a big problem. Londe Ajose runs California Competes, an organization that advocates for higher education policies that increase access. Last year, the CSU system turned away over 30,000 eligible students. And UC turned more than 10,000 eligible applicants away from their schools of choice, instead referring them to the only campus with space, UC Merced. Only about 100 of those said they planned to enroll. Like, lunch is pretty much over, right? Yeah. Yeah. Melanie Aguas is a college counselor at Berkeley High School. Okay, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye. A lot of what she does is tell students not to get their hopes up. It's been getting harder and harder. You have to give them a reality check of, you know, just in case you can't get into your dream school, you have to have a backup plan. As Danny's rejection letters piled up, he was grateful for his backup plan. His college counselor had urged him to apply to a few out-of-state schools, and the news from outside California was better. When I got my acceptance from ASU, that was awesome. Then I got a letter from the dean um, with like a certificate with my name on it saying, like, hey, welcome to ASU. Not only did Arizona State University welcome Danny, they offered him a lot of money. $54,000, or about half his tuition for four years. Danny and his family figured ASU would end up costing less than a California school. It's a calculation more and more California families are making. Since 2002, Arizona State University has seen a more than 200% increase in California student enrollment. At Oregon State University, California freshmen made up 3% of the incoming class in 2002. By 2017, California freshmen made up nearly 14% of Oregon State's new students. It's clear that we are exporting many, many, many more students than other states are exporting. That's Londea Jose from California Competes again. Those are bright and talented students. Those are students whose families are here in the state. Those are students who then may or may not return home. Danny did eventually get into UC Santa Cruz, but he didn't hear from them until summer, long after he'd decided on ASU. And he's glad he ended up going there. He gives tours to prospective students and tells them how much he loves it here. So to the left, this is one of the life science buildings. So if you want to go check out some really cool snakes, you can. My favorite is Henry, the Western Diamondback. He's in there. He likes his classes. He got a good internship. He plays ultimate frisbee. He has another two years of college to decide what he'll do next. But the longer he stays in Arizona, the harder it gets to leave. I just have the connections here. Like, this is where I am now. I'd call it my home. His parents are making the best of it. I don't know where he'll end up. It could be worse. 
Yeah, it did. could be yeah. uh, New Zealand. <laughs> if kids like Danny don't come back to California, we're going to have a problem. Experts estimate by 2030, close to 40% of jobs here will require at least a bachelor's degree. And we're not turning out nearly enough of them. Jose says it's not just about the economy. College grads are more likely to be civically engaged. But it also matters for the kinds of communities we want to live in. UC has enrolled an extra 10,000 California students over the last three years. And CSU is working to refer kids to campuses with room and to help students graduate on time, freeing up more space. But experts say it's going to take more than that for California to live up to the promise of access that made one of the greatest higher ed systems in the world. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. That story is part of our collaboration with public media organizations around the state exploring the California dream. Last week, as part of that series, we brought you a story about how the California dream changed for young people from immigrant families nearly 25 years ago. Back then, a ballot proposition that would have banned undocumented immigrants from schools and public services sparked a grassroots movement. I get emotional thinking about how we all looked at each other. No one recognized that there was people power in the immigrant community and their allies. We didn't know we were that powerful. If you missed that story or any of our weekly episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast. Just search for The California Report magazine wherever you get your podcasts. Look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're all getting older. Some of us may be in denial about the passage of time, but others take it in stride, planning for that moment when we can no longer take care of ourselves. Or maybe it's planning for when you need to start taking care of your parents. If you come from an immigrant family, like I do, those decisions can be complicated. My dad's from India, and I've noticed as he's gotten older that he's spending a lot more time back there with the friends from his childhood, enjoying the food, the culture, and the language that comforts him most. Some of his friends who spent decades in California are choosing to retire back in India. But some South Asian retirees are looking for something that brings them a taste of home without having to live oceans away from their kids. KQED's Sandhya Dirks has been looking at this question in some Silicon Valley suburbs where half the population is Asian. She takes us to an Indian senior living community in Santa Clara. Mahesh Nihalani greets me at the entrance to Priya. So nice Good to, to see meet you. you. Come, come, come on in. Thank come on you. In. He guides me into the courtyard of what looks like it was once a two-story 1970s-style motel, now painted in brick red and pink and blue. Come and have your chat is kept for you. We'll have a little chat, <laughs> and then we can chat. Almost immediately, Mahesh is putting out plates of food, chaat, an Indian street food. It's a Friday tradition here. So we get all the kind of different street foods of India, which they relate to because all of these people, they all, all seniors are born there. They are the 36 senior residents who live in this bustling apartment complex, almost all of them Indian. Mahesh, everyone calls him Mahesh Uncle, is the manager of Priya. This older generation that came from India in the 60s, at this point in time in their life, wants their own environment. 
I mean, uh, maybe our kids who were born here or grown up here, you know, they will kind of assimilate with anything at all, even later in life. But uh, this group, especially this group, and that's quite a large number, needs a place with their own culture, with their own environment. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Immigration and Nationality Act into law. That opened the doors for South Asian immigrants to come to America in large numbers. Now, that wave of baby boomer desis are writing their final acts. It's a generalization. But the majority of these South Asian immigrants were highly educated and had well-paying jobs. That kind of economic power gives people the privilege to be able to choose where they want to live. But it's only recently that there have been options like Priya, places where you get Indian street food every Friday in the courtyard. Food is actually, that's a big thing. That's Arun Paul, who built and opened the first Priya in Santa Clara in 2013. Paul says he saw the need for a retirement community where Indian aunties and uncles didn't feel like the other. Somebody wants to eat with their hands. They can feel comfortable doing that, right? If somebody wants to be barefoot, they can feel comfortable doing that. He's not the only one tapping into this trend. There's South Asian-specific retirement communities in New Jersey, New York, even in the American retiree mecca of Florida. In 2015, Paul opened a second Priya in Fremont. And now he's building a 122-unit apartment complex there as well, with everything from a communal kitchen to an outdoor movie theater. Kind of inspired by Cinema Paradiso, but, but done with a bit of uh, you know, more of a Bollywood twist. Here, a one-bedroom is about 2500 a month. But Paul says the real reason he created Priya... It's personal. You must have seen that growing need. To move to the Bay Area. You wanted your parents to move to the Bay Area. <laughs> that, that was what started it, right? I'm like, okay, if I, how do I get them to move here? Then it is close to my son's place also. You guessed it. That's his mom, Kulu Paul, known here as Kulu Ma. She and her husband moved from their single-family home in Southern California to be closer to family. But that is not only the reason we moved. We can move nearer to his house, but we thought that at the same time we like to live you know, with the community so that we have always some friendship. Chai, no? With sugar? is okay. You also chai no, with sugar? Guluma no, is having chai with Mahesh uncle in the Priya courtyard. They're telling me in India, old people's homes were stigmatized. The concept in India was started like that, where, you know, uh, old people were just sent to a home to say, now this is where you are. Okay, you don't belong to the house, this is where you are. Vidhasam, Vidhasam, they call this Vidha means old. Yeah. Old home. Old home. This doesn't feel like that at all. Mahesh uncle gives me an example of the morning's activity. See, laughing yoga basically means laughing for no reason at all. <laughs> and once this laughter starts, Everybody laughs. Believe me, it happens. It's, it's contagious. Like you, you breathe in, you breathe in, and then you breathe out with the laughter. <laughs> As we drink our chai and eat biscuits, people float in and out of their apartments. There's a hum of conversation and just a proximity to neighbors, a way of occupying communal space. It does remind me of India. It's something you could maybe recreate in an urban corridor, but on the surface, it's not as easy to model India in the sprawling strip malls and gated communities of these Silicon Valley suburbs. An older Indian man comes and joins us at the folding table. So Mr. Sudhakar is now permanently going to move in here. Mr. Sudhakar tells me he and his wife are coming all the way from Wisconsin. How did you get from 
Wisconsin to California. I fly. <laughs> How did you tell you? But really. My daughter lives in Cupertino. Your daughter lives in Cupertino. Yeah. Tea time is over, and Mahesh Uncle starts recruiting residents for the day's afternoon activity, karaoke. You can come and sing a Bengali song. Yeah. No, I cannot sing anything. <laughs> Mahesh Uncle is very happy being an almost senior at Priya, but he says when the time comes, he and his wife will be one of those who return to India. The last innings absolutely of my life. I should spend there, you know, with our people, and I should die there. For those who stay in the States, these communities create a sort of hybrid, a place both very Indian and very American, for a growing demographic of Indian-American seniors. There was a good song from those times, yeah. For the California Report, I'm Sandhya Dirks in Santa Clara. One of the reasons Sandhya loved doing that story was because she finally got to interview folks who could pronounce her name right. And when we're talking about growing older, it's not just about having familiar food and a culturally sensitive environment. Many times, seniors who are more frail need help with the basics, things like getting bathed or getting dressed. So as California's population continues to age, caregivers are going to be more important than ever. And sometimes those caregivers can provide something really simple, friendship. Ruxandra Guidi has been following two women in Los Angeles who've come to depend on one another. One is 99, the other is in her 60s. Ruxandra met up with them at their weekly visit to the hair salon. It's Friday morning. Agripina Castellanos is sitting next to her walker, eating a muffin while she waits to get her blowout. The salon is on the first floor of her apartment complex in Angeles Plaza the nation's largest affordable senior housing project. I've been here for many years, she says. So many, I don't know. I've stopped counting. Then her caregiver, Maria Martinez, chimes in. Well, you've been here at least 26 years. Agripina is one of the elders here. In a few months, she'll be turning 100. Maria helps her remember dates, bathes and dresses her, prepares her meals, gets her to appointments. The two of them chat and wait for Agripina's turn in the salon. Maria guides her toward the stylist chair. Maria says at first she was afraid of Agripina. She says, When you went into her apartment, before anything, you had to go wash your hands. Now I know what she likes, but she's also not as rigid as she was before. Maria wasn't formally trained for caregiving. She came to California from Mexico in her 20s, and until she was in her mid-40s, she'd never had a job outside of caring for her four kids. 
Agripina is also Mexican. She never married. She doesn't have any children. Her lifelong companion, her twin sister, died long ago. Maria has been working for Agripina for 10 years. After the hair appointment, Maria carries Agripina's bag while she slowly pushes her walker toward her apartment door. Maria asks if she wants a drink. Then she grabs sodas out of the fridge and prepares sandwiches for lunch. Caregivers like Maria are becoming increasingly indispensable. The U.S. Census Bureau says for the first time in U.S. history, older adults will soon outnumber kids. And they'll need help. Maria makes $11 an hour as a caregiver. That's only 50 cents more an hour than the minimum wage in Los Angeles. Barely a livable wage. And she's with Agripina eight hours a day from Monday through Sunday every day of the week. Maria says, I live relatively close to her, and every morning and every evening I give her a call. If she doesn't answer in the evening, I just come on over immediately. What if she fell down? What if the phone isn't working? Sometimes at 9 or 10 in the evening, you'll find me here. When her husband died of a stroke a couple of years ago, Maria felt lonely. She knew she needed to find ways to get out of the house and stay active, so she chose to work more than she gets paid for. It's not that she needs the money. She lives with one of her grown daughters and has little by way of expenses, but she feels committed to her client. Soy como muy, muy hogareña, como muy de casa. Entonces aquí pues yo me siento como en mi casa porque she says, I'm somebody who loves being at home. So here, I feel like I do at home because Agripina and her family treat me so well. After my husband died, my kids begged me to stop working, but I said, I can't do that. I can't leave her. Hello. Maria answers Agripina's phone. It's her nephew, wanting to make plans for the weekend. This is another way Maria helps by managing Agripina's social life. But mostly, they like to be in each other's company. They watch TV, and they like to sit around and talk for hours. Agripina says, she's with me every day. She goes home when her shift is over, but I'm always confident that I'll see her the next day, even if she's late. Their weekly ritual ends on Sundays, when Maria isn't actually on the clock. That's when they head to Agripina's favorite restaurant in Chinatown. Agripina has a big appetite. She eats a full plate of pancakes, fried eggs, and potatoes. She has no serious health problems and religiously takes her vitamins. She says, I barely go to the doctors. Not unless I have something that threatens to kill me, then I'll go to him. Otherwise, I'm looking for the good things in life, so I can stick around longer. <laughs> At almost 100, Agripina is as old as Maria's mother would be if she were still alive. And that's exactly how they see each other, as a mother and daughter. They know that what they have is special. After a long, leisurely brunch, 
Maria helps Agripina get up from her chair. She takes her by the arm as they head to Maria's car in the parking lot, slow step by slow step. For the California Report, I'm Ruxandra Guidi in Los Angeles. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Starting route to a peanut. We've been asking listeners for your ideas for our series about California towns with unusual or surprising names. And a lot of you have been sending great suggestions, like a place called Peanut in the northwestern part of the state. To find out how it got its name, we called up Jim French, who's a board member of the Trinity County Historical Society. Peanut was originally called Salt Creek, and in... uh, 1908, the people that lived in the area decided they wanted a post office, so they applied for a post office. The post office was saying, no, we're only going to do post office with one name. So the teacher by the name of Joe McKnight from Salt Creek School, while he was talking to A.L. Paulson, who's the postmaster, they were talking about this dilemma and how they were going to have to change the name. And Mr. Paulson happened to be eating a bag of peanuts. He looks over to his friend Joe McKnight and says, let's just call it Peanut. Um, Mr. Paulson remarked, well, they'd never stand for that, but what the heck. And lo and behold, um, it was approved by the Postmaster General. And uh, from that time on, the whole place has been called Peanut. It's historically significant because it was one of the old historic trails from Weaverville to the coast. Many of the people traveling by horseback or by foot in the early days would stop in Peanut. Other than that, it's always been known as a rural pastoral area where there's plenty of cows and horses and not much more. It's just one of those places time has forgot. You can send us your suggestions for a place called what? Shoot us an email, calreport at kqed.org. Be sure to tune into next week's California Report magazine. We're going to devote our whole show to a documentary from our friends at the storytelling podcast, Snap Judgment. You probably know Oakland ranks as one of California's most dangerous cities because of its high murder rate. But we'll hear the stories behind those numbers. I was just talking to myself like, I can't believe that my brother is really dead. I'm calm, but I'm I'm amped in the same note, like a bottle of soda. And meet one man on a quest to bring that homicide rate down. Stop killing my kids. I went to each corner on a stoplight yelling, stop killing my kids. That's next week on the California Report magazine. (laughs) 
And that's our show for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our web producer and Nadine Sabai is our intern. Our team also includes Adrian Hill, Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. The James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2019 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. And Paint Care. Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint with over 800 convenient drop-off locations around California. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.